Greetings. This is David LaRocca, and you are at the point of learning with my friend Peter Horn. In this episode, Pete will be talking with photographer and professor John Opera, whose artistic innovations I began writing about some 20 years ago. More recently, I engaged his work in a chapter of the book Photography's Materialities and interviewed him for the journal After Image. For me, John's always evolving body of work offers up an exceptional opportunity to explore the nature of art, especially in a literal sense. Bringing natural materials into conversation with manufactured ones, John provides occasion to consider the dynamic, uncanny zones of overlap between photography and painting. I met John when we were nine years old, and a while later in high school, he and I shared many hours taking photographs on the streets of Buffalo, New York, and developing film and prints and our friendship. We also reveled in more than a few adventures with our beloved host, Pete. You're in for a treat. Enjoy the show. today's show, artist and professor John Opera. The goal is not to take an ordinary photograph of an extraordinary subject. Anyone can go to Niagara Falls or, you know, and take a halfway decent photograph. Um, but the, the, it's really about going to the ordinary or, 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 you know, approaching things that we might feel are banal and and, and trying to transform or transcend what they typically stand for, what they're typically about. Opera shares some of how and why he came to push at the traditional boundaries of photography. Photography is a medium about recollection and, and repetition. It's not a medium where you generate new things typically, which is maybe why I, I really want to bust that wide Why open. I do that, now I do that. And some of what art does and does not say about the artist. I, I've never really felt compelled to reveal myself too much to the viewer um, because I don't think that's why I make the work and that's not what the work is about. I, I think of myself as being really present, you know, and, and kind of reconfiguring things in a process, for example, um, to see what I can discover. You know, and it always has to be about perception. I mean, we're, we're ultimately talking about visuality here and, you know, visual language. So I think I'm, I'm just always looking for that surprise. Assistant professor and head of the photography program at the State University of New York at Buffalo. John Opera has exhibited his critically acclaimed photographs for over two decades in dozens of galleries, from New York to L.A., from Mexico City to Basel, Switzerland. His work has been featured in numerous reviews, articles, and other publications, from Art Forum to The New Yorker. Admired by new creators as well as established artists who are now in their 80s, John often invents tools and techniques to push the limits of photography sometimes putting a new spin on 19th century processes, sometimes developing a completely novel apparatus, for example, involving a homemade turntable or a laser 
as he explores fresh modes of painting with light. The son of a scientist and a social worker, Opera is an artist keenly focused on how we see the complexity of the multifaceted world around us and within us. He's also my oldest best friend since fifth grade, and we talk and work text pretty much every day. So despite that I've wanted to do an interview with him since I started making podcasts, I always worried that it would be hard for us to stay on task. I was right about that. But fortunately, I've had some time in the three months since I recorded this interview in mid-August to think about how I wanted to shape hours of raw tape into the highlights you're about to hear. As the lucky beneficiary of a mini-gallery of opera pieces amassed over the last 30 years, I think the thing I love most about John's approach is that he explores each path he takes as fully and painstakingly as he can, before embarking on some tangent that is more technically challenging and interesting to him, which opens new ways for the rest of us to see. As I lay out in just a minute, I relied for inspiration for some questions on Susan Sontag's 1977 collection of essays called On Photography. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time because I'm a huge fan of your work, but part of the challenge is we know each other so well and I feel like we could talk about just anything uh, that I went ahead and read Susan Sontag's On Photography, which is a book I've wanted to read for a long time. This was a nice excuse to do it in order to use some of her ideas as a kind of harness, uh, kind of a point of departure. And so to start with, there's something magical about the power of images. Um, Sontag talks about even the simple act of like tacking a poster above a bed or keeping a picture of a loved one in your wallet, uh, nowadays your phone, um, having a political person that you support, a candidate as a lapel pin. Just these images help us, in her words, they, they, they can be seen as attempts to uh, contact or lay claim to another reality. And I realized when I read this that, 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 that there's something, always something magical about what photographs convey or maybe how they convey me um, when I look at them, but it's just that there are so many photographs in our world today that I don't often you know, stop to pause and think about the power, a kind of magic that is contained in the photographic image. Um, how does that resonate with, with you? Isn't yeah. it? First of all, when you're, when you're, you know, you're talking about the ubiquity or you know, the the hyper prevalence or the saturation of images in our in our world and you know everything that surrounds us um, in in a way I think we have become very desensitized to images uh, and and maybe the magical aspects don't immediately register today just because of how uh, ingrained they are um, but. The uh, thing you brought up about Sontag, yeah, is, is a really interesting and and uh, f- uh, an idea, a condition of the medium. I think that's been reframed and described many times. That passage that you're speaking about from on photography, you know, Sontag's book, uh, reminds me very much of a very compatible idea that Rosalind Krauss put forward around the same time. The way she frames it uh, is that a photograph is indexical. 
um, that it, it literally points to something in the world, uh, but it is not that thing. It's, it's a departure from that thing. Uh, and it, it has these, you know, maybe magical properties in the sense that uh, we allow ourselves to enter into the reality of photographs mistaking it for our own. But, um, you know, I think the magic or the point is, you know, it's, it's not our own world. It, it just shares, uh, and to quote another uh, writer I love, um, Kaja Silverman, that it, it has all the surface appearances of the world, but um, that's about it. And, and that's, that's its kind of um, maybe deceptive attribute, um, but also, you know, I, I think where the magic uh, resides, the, the strangeness or the uncanniness, yeah. We, you uh, mentioned the ubiquity of photographs, photographic images. Mm -hmm. We all, any of us who have a smartphone today, are carrying around a camera um, that's probably as good as anything anybody could have gotten in terms of a digital camera 20 years ago, and everybody's got one. Uh, but still, there are people who will, um, you know, uh, seventh graders and, and what have you, who will get fired up about like getting a Nikon, getting a Canon, like an old-fashioned camera, sometimes with film, um, and walk into a situation and have the camera strap and the camera and, and go into it. And there, there seems to be something different about that um, engagement with your environment, that engagement with other people when you have a physical camera as opposed to just, you know, taking out your iPhone and snapping a few photographs. Yeah, um, sure. How do you think about that difference as somebody who has, you know, navigated the world with a camera and an iPhone, um, you know, what happens, how people react with you or how you feel? Mm -hmm. um, what is different about those experiences? I, I think part of the answer lies in how technology has developed over the last 150 years in the sense that, um, you know, for example, with photography as it's evolved since its invention or since its harnessing, however you want to uh, describe that moment in history, uh, that, you know, and th this kind of began with Ford, Henry Ford, Fordism, and, and Kodak, um, where Kodak very quickly, one of the first things they wanted to do was really hide um, or obfuscate the process of photography. And that's what, that's what uh, democratized photography too, was um, you know, simplifying the process and you know, somewhat basically creating a black box scenario where you know, we've become further and further distanced um, from the source of, of what makes a photograph a photograph. And I, I think that's part of it, is that when a student um, holds, you know, like you said, a Nikon or a, a Canon in their hand, um, that, that, I think, is a moment of awareness of, you know, this is about perception. This is like a very, you know, this is about an intentional investigation into perception. Um, but I also think that that happens because they're closer to the process. They're, you know, they're inside of it instead of um, kind of, you know, separated from it or they're at least closer to being inside of it, say, rolling a, you know, loading a roll of film and then right. 
and then taking that film and having to learn how to uh, load it on a reel in complete darkness and you know so on and so forth. The other thing um, that I think students don't don't encounter, don't realize they're going to encounter initially is uh, the latency of photography. Um, you know, for many, many years, <laughs> you would make a photograph or take a photograph and you wouldn't see the results for two weeks, six months, however long it took you to develop that roll of film. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever the temporality is of it, that, that distance between the moment of capture and you know, seeing that image literally emerge, say, in a darkroom, it's very different than the instant gratification of cell phone technology. And, and that really mirrors you know, many other aspects of our culture today, this, <laughs> this disposability, the, uh, the immediacy, the, you know, all that stuff, the, the dopamine. <laughs> yeah, the hit of seeing it right <laughs> yeah, away. Hit. Take that hit. We are <laughs> sitting here, oddly enough, in a place that is your studio. Correct. But seriously, oddly enough, uh, through whatever coincidence these things happen, it was once upon a time, decades ago, your dad's element, second grade class? Uh, I, I don't know. He, we were in a defunct he school. He thinks fourth grade. For, fourth grade. But I don't know. That's... Yeah. Um, when he was here, there was a fire in this building in the late or early 50s, and um, there was another floor to the building. I mean, it was a different kind of building. I think it was originally built in 1898. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I, this is when when he uh, came to visit me for the first time. Uh, he didn't know <laughs> that I rented in this specific spot and in the parking lot declared, I went here, I went to school here. And uh, yeah, so that's a wild, wild thing. Um, but the fact is uh, Buffalo's small and my father's from this neighborhood or area in Buffalo, Tonawanda. And uh, his childhood home is, is about two blocks from here. Okay, so on the subject of your dad, uh, before he had a long career as a science teacher, uh, he, he worked as a geologist for New York State. And I think yeah. part of his job as a geologist was to use photography to document some of the, uh, yeah. know, the, the structural rock form, formations and so forth, whatever, whatever it was that he was studying. Uh, but he took lots of pictures too, avocationally, um, out hiking. Um, mm -hmm. He's a lover of nature as are you. And of course, you and your sister when you were kids. Was it, was it seeing, was it for you as a kid, seeing and enjoying uh, the pictures and slides that he took? Uh, was, do you think that's what kindled your original interest, your initial interest in photography? Or uh, yeah. where did it come from, do you think? To ask you, to answer the questions I enjoy looking at my dad's photographs, um, not really, because I remember as a kid, like, oh God, <laughs> like here's this, you know, it was, you know, this would have been the early 1980s when slideshows were really popular. and. You know, my parents would have, other people right, and I'm vacation. like, oh yeah. my God. And <laughs> I remember like, you know, not really caring much about it, but um, I think in a very related uh, 
scenario or I mean I think eventually obviously I mean I, I, I have other things to say about my dad's photographs and my development um, but I do think like one one thing my my dad uh, always instilled or, or something that I, I uh, learned by watching him was this kind of <laughs> I will say like obsessive relationship with empiricism with observing the world. Okay. Um, you know, I was thinking about this this morning as my sister and I used to have a joke. My dad, I mean, we'd, we'd be driving and he would just, you know, blurt out, a hawk! And, <laughs> and uh, you know, but, you know, and I, I think in those days they weren't as commonplace in this area, but my dad was always doing things like that and... <laughs> So he'd see a hawk flying by outside. Yeah, I mean, but he was just hyper aware <laughs> of his environment. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, we would be then hiking a week later and there'd be hawk, you know, I don't know, there'd be pellets that, you know, he would identify as belonging to a hawk. So I think all these things he was observing that I was observing him observing uh, added up to some kind of like holistic whole. I, I think my dad has a kind of, um, yeah, sensitivity to nature and ecosystems. And, you know, that has to do, of course, with his education. But that's something that I think I developed a sense for that kind of thing uh, long before I got into photographs. But as, as far as uh, his relationship to photography, yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, at, at a certain point, I was like, wait a minute, what's he doing there? Like, that's kind of, I want to do that too. The first time I, I remember I got to use my dad's really good camera, his Praktika, uh, which was an uh, East German, or West German, sorry, a West German camera with a Zeiss lens, um, kind of like the Volvo 240 of cameras. May, I was maybe 12. Um, so, yeah, and I, I mean, I think one of the other things, I've talked about this before, uh, is I, I, I really do think when, um, you know, when it comes to the photographs I've made um, that are lens-based images, the landscape period from, you know, now 15 plus years ago, uh, I think it was a complete reflection in a way of my dad's sensibility in taking pictures, a very kind of clinical, deadpan, um, you know, an empirical kind of way of, of taking a photograph that um, that there was really no reason to do anything tricky or gimmicky with vantage point or depth of field. I mean, there, there was always this sense that, um, you know, the purpose was in a way to, to photograph what was in front of you. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think in a sense, my, my training or my early growth, you know, there was this, uh, almost classical approach to, to photography. And I, I wouldn't say, um, uh, you know, pedestrian or amateur. I mean, I, I think my dad actually had a really good eye. I mean, I, I looked through his um, photographs. I organized his slides a couple years ago and I was like, wow, like he was, he's a really good image maker. It's just interesting that you should say that you know, part of what you recognized about it, looking at it, was that it was pretty much straight on. Because I think sometimes um, when I think of some of your landscapes or some of the photographs that you took, um, you know, when you would go out hiking or something and come back with a whole 
you know, it's as if you were saying, it's as if I was there with you and you were saying like, hey, take a look at this. Yeah. Like, isn't this well, you cool? Were there like, for check one. it out. I was there for, Zor. well, I was there for a number yeah. Of, yeah. of, you know, the trips where you were uh, taking <clears throat> photographs, but it's kind of cool to look at the image. It's as if you were saying through the image, you know, like, hey, check yeah. out this, you know, check out this very cool thing to look at. And I, you know, and, and it's true for me, I may, I may have walked right past it, you know, and so it's cool to have somebody with the, yeah. with your eye calling attention to it, but without a bunch of the, uh, you know, uh, artifice or. Yeah, I mean, I think another way you could, you could put it is that it's, it's a kind of classical human vantage point, that it's very much about human vision you know, it's it's not um, on the ground, and it's not a caterpillar's vision, but you know that that the camera was you know more or less sixty inches or so above the ground, and that that in a way mimics human sight, which is you know something that is is ultimately behind the very uh, structure of photography or, or what we know photography to be. There are different ways that people categorize your work. So we talked about landscapes, for example. I mean, things that you were into at a different period, um, and you could talk about it uh, as the, you know, the the method of production. For mm -hmm. example, anthotypes, where you're using pigments and dyes from, you know, uh, fruits um, and tea, I guess, you know, but natural pigments yeah. um, uh, to uh, to produce the images. Um, one of the ways that I think about it is when I look at the when I think about the different kinds of photographs that you have made is like there is a category of photograph that you know maybe somebody else with a really good eye and a good camera um, who had exceptional attention painstaking attention to detail maybe somebody else could make that image. Uh, but now, you know, with some of the things that you are doing, um, either with, um, you know, processes that are just so antique that very few people, you know, uh, use them. Anthotypes, I think, would be an example. Um, it's a very 19th century right, right process that probably wasn't very popular at the time. Yeah. Um, and some of the work that you're doing now with lasers, Right. Uh, you know, where you build your own apparatus to be able to, and armatures to be able to support and render these things. Um, so the second category would be, I don't think, some of the things you do, I don't think anybody else could do. Large aspects of photography, most of photography is very duplicatable um, in the sense that um, if you you know, have the same camera, the same lens, and maybe go stand in the same place around the same time of year, the same time of day, and wait around long enough for atmospheric variables or whatever. You, you know, that um, you could more or less make something that resembles uh, someone else's style. And this is one of the uh, yeah, one, one of the uh, paradox or limitations or uh, deceptions, I think, that um, in complexities, are, there, there are a lot of <laughs> ways you can describe this condition. Programmatic. Okay. I mean, this is a word that I've, I use quite a bit, that most of photography has evolved and, uh, you know, has been homogenized into pretty programmatic um, media. And in that... 
that very much has to do with, I think, photography's goal all along was to get, is to get really closer and closer to human vision. And, and it, in, in some ways, it's surpassed human vision. I mean, it's become hyper-real. Think of uh, whatever, uh, you know, photograph made by uh, a satellite. Uh, oh, I see. You know, um, but, uh, but that, I think that's related to what you're saying, this, um, this repetition that's inherent in the medium. Basically, I, I think there was a motivation for me to uh, remove myself um, from that structure, that system. And, and maybe that's partially my ego in, in the sense that I want to make something that is not really around or that feels new. I, I want to make something that feels surprising, to me even. And as I've evolved over the years, I, I think I've been inching closer and closer to basically, um, you know, reconfiguring photography as I see fit in, in terms of the apparatus. And, and photography is so linked and in, intertwined and entangled with apparatus. and. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that the, the you know the way an apparatus is configured um, has you know a profound uh, impact or effect on how it frames the world. So, when we look in it through a telescope, you know, there's a certain uh, set of data we can visually acquire by looking through a telescope. We can see the stars, we can see planets, we can see the rings of Saturn. At a certain point in my development, I found it necessary to design my own tools in order to uh, discover you know new possibilities in, in terms of like what a photograph can do or uh, what it can say and I, I think for a long time I got really um, just tired of <laughs> or bored with the more kind of programmatic approach and I, I think it's you know there's always been something about my work that has felt um, to be about photography itself. You know, even the landscape works are about this relationship to empiricism and, and observation. Um, but at, at a certain point, I, I really wanted to invent and I, I wanted to um, expand. And I, and I think it, you know, a lot of those landscape images, I, I had such rich kind of interior feelings that were associated with why I, I made those images and what, what was going on in terms of, you know, there were of course images of a landscape, but there, was, there were other things kind of churning in, in me in terms of like maybe an interior topography um, that, that I, I and it, they, it never felt quite expressed um, in those photographs. And I, I think I was just kind of, um, you know, hungry to to discover something, you know. But it was also, I think, this desire to get to the source or to the kind of more elemental um, qualities of, of photography. Um, you know, and like a lot of my work, when I start when I start doing it or I start doing something new, um, you know, you I, I really don't think. I, I just do. I mean, I. And it goes back to this thing, I think now in retrospect, I can, I can understand this, but it, it goes back to this relationship between the apparatus and the outcome. And so I think I was just kind of remixing um, 
photography, including you know paying tribute to its history, to its to its evolution. Um, and that's something I, you know, when I do reach for an antiquated process, whether it's an anthotype or, you know, now the cyanotype canvases, it's really important to me that the expression is, feels contemporary, you know, that it's, it's not um, quaint or twee or, I don't know, what would be a good name, uh, you know, nostalgic, even though it is nostalgic, I think that's a, just a symptom of our time. but. Um, but again, I, I, I wanted to do something new. Well, you know, when I was reading the Sontag collection of essays about photography, like here, I was like, this is it. This is part of what John does that mm. is that I've gotten used to it because I'm you know, I've been I've, I've been fortunate to be kind of alongside and hearing about your discoveries and movements and yeah. inventions of various apparatus as you've done it. But this is part of what is so different. She writes, for example, at one point, um, and I think she's trying to draw this distinction. You know, this 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 distinction between you know what photography does and what painting does, right? Mm. But she has this moment where she says, like, the identification of a subject of a photograph of the subject of a photograph, um, and I'm thinking of like a you know, portrait or something perhaps, always dominates our perception of it, mm -hmm. as it does not necessarily in a painting. The formal qualities of style uh, are at most of secondary importance in photography, while what a photograph is of is always of primary importance. Mm -hmm. The assumption right. underlying all uses of photography that each photograph is a piece of the world means that we don't know how to react to a photograph if the image is visually ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Say, too closely seen or too distant until we know what piece of the world that it is. What looks like a bare coronet, the famous photograph taken by Harold Edgerton in 1936 becomes far more interesting when we find out it's a splash of milk. Right. So like this was the moment where it's like this is what John does. These are photographs or these are photographic processes but we don't necessarily know. I don't necessarily know when I first look at one and say like oh well that's clearly a detail from this or that or that might be this or that. These are you know you're making abstractions you're painting with light, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I think, well, what she said here in the 70s is probably true for most of, you know, most images created by photographic processes, probably. Mm -hmm. um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to apply to what you do, at least what you're doing right now. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So like, that's part, and I think that's part of what's so interesting, but it's also a little bit disorienting for a you know, a viewer of some of your pieces to say like, huh, what is happening here? It's a very different experience from looking at, you know, um, mm -hmm. say a standard photograph. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what Sontag, that passage is basically saying is that we, we um, yeah, the, the subject is primary. The thing depicted is really what um, is, is pushed forward in a photograph. I mean, Krauss would have called that uh, Rosalind Krauss would have referred to that as the transparency of the medium. We we tend to just look right past um, the materiality of a photograph into into the space 
um, where the subject resides or the representation of the subject resides. You know, when, when we... Uh, I'm sorry, so there's when a, you take the, like, the material, like what it's actually printed on, the right. process, the process that it takes to get a it piece there, of paper. all of that stuff, yep. all of that stuff, we just go yeah. right to right. what's this of. Okay. Yes, right. yeah. Um, and in the case of abstraction, I mean, I, I think um, what's happened in my work over time is that I, I maintain um, these basic photographic, you know, ingredients, uh, something light sensitive, a substrate, um, but it's, it's kind of like any system, pick any system that uh, comprises many elements and you start removing elements one by one and, you know, when does it stop being that system? That's kind of what I've done with photography, is that uh, I, I remove the lens, I remove the relationship between material and, and device, and, um, you know, and I, I think with, with this work I'm really trying to find that line between, uh, yeah, well, what, what defines a photograph and uh, when does it maybe push out into other um, kinds of experiences. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, and for me, that's that's I think the big metaphor in the work um, is this you know possibility of expanded vision, not necessarily achieving it, but um, you know somehow pointing in that direction. If that makes sense. Because you're still listening, I'm going to guess you are part of my target audience, which is smart people curious about what and how and why we learn. Today we're mapping some of the terrain John Opera has taken as he has learned and relearned the art of photography through invention, imagination, and lots and lots of trial and error. If you are currently a financial supporter of Point of Learning, thanks so much. I'll get back to the highlights of my conversation with John in just a second. If you are not yet, please check out the show page or visit patreon.com slash pointoflearningpodcast to find out how you can support this passion project of mine for as little as 10 cents a day. To keep it real, while I do pledge to two public radio stations and support a few podcasts I love with monthly donations, I don't support every single one. But also... I don't know of another solo-produced podcast that makes high-quality episodes that I still learn from when I listen to them years after they dropped. Your dollars help me pay for transcripts for each episode, batteries for recording equipment, stipends for musician and designer friends, and gas money, for example, for the road trip to Philly I'm taking next month to record my next interview. More about that at the end of the show. Thanks for your consideration. Back to John. I have a friend who's a talented uh, woodworker and furniture maker, and he talks about taking inspiration for the lines of some of the pieces that he makes, the form of it, from the architecture of bridges. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, uh, you know, is there anything that you go back to? I know, you know, you're a lover of uh, nature, but is there, any, you know, anything you go hiking, you know, frequently and so forth, and you know. Uh, look at the stars sometimes, you know, uh, is there anything in the either the natural or built, uh, you know, made world that is a kind of 
you know continual source of inspiration for you, or does it, <laughs> yeah. or does it, or does it shift? No, I, I mean I, I laugh because I'm thinking. I mean, as you know, I'm a creature of habit, um, and I think I don't know. My routine is really important to me. Um, I mean, it, it's changed. Uh, I think you know. Well, I mean, I, I, I return to certain songs, certain music. Okay. Um, you know that are, are really close to me, or are, are are always present when I'm making work. I mean, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Phil Vanderheiden, who you know, we have the same thing we do, um, which is we can both listen to a song on repeat like a hundred times in a day in the studio, <laughs> and you know that that kind of puts puts you into a kind of trance like. Situation. I don't think Phil does it much anymore because I think I think he was doing it when he was painting. Um, It'd be like a, like a Brian Eno like music for airports. Oh type yeah, thing Brian Eno, or, or it like, could be well, a Guided by Voices song, nice. or um, yeah, or uh, you know, I don't know. I um, I can't think of. So it could have lyrics in it, but obviously at the hundredth time you're not listening to lyrics. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's like an energy just, yeah. field. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean Brian Eno's discrete music has. Um, has been in the background of of me making these works for the last six years. I mean, I I will listen to it on repeat, um, you know, while I'm making the work. And you know, I mean, some of the radio works take uh, you know two days to make, fifteen hours, um, you know. And I'll I'll listen to it so much. For example, I'll, I'll be driving home and I'll st I'll still hear it, um, like you know, auditory hallucination. Yeah. Nature, yeah. Nature still um, is this kind of comfort for me, I think. Um, I don't do it as much as I, w I should anymore, but um, yeah, I mean, I think when things are not going well in my life, or I don't, I'm, I don't feel like they're going well, I, I'll often go for a hike or return to those kinds of spaces. Um, but I, I think uh, my process has become a lot more interior, um, in, you know, and that's because I'm not going out into the world um, to finding, you know, to find images. I'm, I'm kind of generating them from within the medium. So, actually, this room, um, you know, my studio is a really important place for me at this point. Leaving aside, you know, your professional projects for a moment, you also maintain at least one very well-trafficked uh, Instagram account. <laughs> yeah. That's mostly snapshots of your environment. You know, uh -huh. this, this would be the quick, uh, like an iPhone-type snapshot. A quirky, often hilarious, sometimes disturbing snapshots of what you might see from your window at home or walking around. Um, is it ever tough? to turn off that impulse. And this is me speaking like, you know, as you know, for, for a couple decades there, I was a professional English teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and I would often have a difficulty like reading something for pleasure, like picking up a copy of Harper's or just a novel or something yeah. and like turning off that part that says, you know, like this would be a great passage to teach or I could teach this story, or maybe this poem over here, you know, like it was hard to kind of turn that off and just, and just enjoy it for what it was. So I guess I wanted to ask like, is it hard for you when you're just walking around to try to, you know, unplug to, and, and say like, oh, wait, that would make a pretty good photograph to turn off that part of your brain that says that or is photographic seeing pretty much just always a part of how you, you know, yeah. look at the world? 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, yeah, the phone has become an interesting tool for me. Um, yeah, I mean, in the case of the Instagram account Grant and Potomac, I think you're referring to. I don't I mean, know if we could use names. Yeah, I mean that that <laughs> kind of like developed very organically, um, and it really started with me coming to the realization that the neighborhood I lived in was incredibly diverse, um, but just had some real characters in it. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think for me, that, that account is really the way I kind of keep in touch with my source as, as a photographer. But also, I think it's a reflection of all of the things that I never quite could fit into my work, but swirl around in my head. So I, you know, yeah, there there are some images on that account that are funny, some that are downright disturbing or too real, and the context of those kind of, you know, intermingling, I, I think, is, um, you know, creates a certain kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know that. Yeah, I think that that Instagram thing fulfills that for me. But in terms of yeah, do I do I feel compelled or do I need to make those pictures? Um, not really. But as far as going out into the woods or, I never take my camera anymore. Huh? Um, rarely, very rarely, unless I have a specific thing I'm looking for. Like you know, I mentioned to you I wanted to go back to Zor to try to look for water diffraction. Um, but I I think. Um, when I enter those spaces, yeah, I, th I think I still, I do still see things photographically, and I can, I think to myself, oh, that would be a nice, that would be a really beautiful picture. Um, but then, it, I guess it goes back to that repetition thing that I said, and I told you I was trying to avoid um, with you earlier. You know, when I left um, those earlier ways of, of making photographs, even though now I'm, I'm kind of using, <laughs> I'm, I'm inside of a different kind of repetition. Uh, with the abstractions, um, but I, I guess I, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I, I think it's folded back more on in onto you know, empiricism, and still being sensitive to my surroundings. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I notice everything. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I mean, not everything. It's, that sounds it's, egotistical, but I, I notice minutia that I know a lot of people don't. Is At least that's what I've been told. Is there yeah. something in my teeth? No, no, okay. you're good. When you talked about like other things, uh, like the, in, in the Grant Potomac uh, account, a lot they're very funny. You know, some funny images in there. And this is this is a point that I did think of as a question. You are one of the funniest people in my life. Uh, when we talk on the that's phone, true. for example, <laughs> maybe I should meet no, more. I maybe I should meet more people. Um, no, but uh, you know we can we can talk and get crack each other up. You know, know. Uh, it's a good thing. The very start of this interview, for example, I probably will use as an outtake. You know, at the very end because we couldn't uh, hold it together. But I don't think of your like. Do you do you, do you, do you see humor in your work? Like, is is there in your in in your stuff that you sh show? No, is that in there? Like, it, <laughs> not much. Yeah, I mean, has um, that ever been anything that you've thought about or worried yeah. about? No, I mean, this is, I, I mean, I've, you're not the only person who's pointed this out. Um, that, yeah, I mean, in many ways, my work, I think, comes from a much deeper yeah. place that I, you know, not a lot of, I, I don't, I don't show very often. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I mean, that goes, uh, you know, that, that goes along with a, a couple things I, I think about. Um, one is that, yeah, this, your, your surface attributes or, or what, what, what you externalize to the world, I, I don't, I never feel compelled to put that in my work. I, I think for me, my work has always been, in a way, very foreign to me. Um, but also, yeah, it comes from a very deep place. And I, I often say this to people, and I really believe it, I, I follow the work. Um, there are things that I know I need to do <laughs> in the work in order to get to the next level of understanding, for example. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've always had that tendency. I mean, even as a child, I mean, I would take things apart in the house and I don't know if you remember when I used to make models, this is before mm -hmm. I knew you, but when I was like seven or eight, I mean, I, uh, it's, when I look at them, they're kind of disturbing because they're, I mean, they're, they're very well detailed. So I, I mean, they're not disturbing, but they're surprising. And I, I don't know, I think that's always, you know, people have a lot of contradictions and I'm, I'm a person just like, like you are. And I, I don't know. I mean, there are parts of my work that I don't, feel um, like I, I don't know, I don't want to explain it or I don't want, I don't necessarily want to understand it completely, you know, because I, again, I mean, I, I think there's always been something about what I do, um, you know, I, I know, I know to proceed in my work when something really surprises me, you know, something that kind of uh, comes out of the ether, if you will. I mean, maybe something that um, really wasn't, you know, part of my conscious decision making, but just, but just kind of appeared. If that makes sense, that sounds really out there. But oh, it does. Uh, it, it it makes sense. It resonates, and I think that that's a probably a good a, a good point um, that you don't need to. You know, there are plenty of people making whimsical art you know photograph or the click it's the like a little yeah. bit of like tongue-in-cheek or you know so forth that if that's not what you want you know like if that's not what you feel um you know called to make if that's not what you follow um mm -hmm. that makes sense it's just you know it's interesting and it's something that i'd never focused on and then i had this thought as i was prepping for the interview and i was like well wait what if I've gotten it wrong and there is something that John thinks is funny, you know, but I've just missed it because maybe my sense of humor isn't there. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that I'm willing to spend 15 hours making something only to have it not turn out. I mean, I, that happens a lot. And I, that's a moment where I'm like, I could either cry or laugh and, you know. That's hilarious. Somewhere in the middle. Um, um, yeah, but I, I, I agree that, you know, that I, I've never really felt compelled to reveal myself too much to the viewer um, because I don't think that's why I make the work and that's not what the work is about. I, I think of myself as being really present, you know, and, and kind of reconfiguring things in a process, for example, um, to see what I can discover. And, uh, um, you know, and it always has to be about perception. I mean, we're, we're ultimately talking about visuality here and, you know, visual language. So I think I'm, I'm just always looking for that surprise, you know.
John has taught for nearly 20 years. Undergraduates yeah, and graduate students and so forth. 2003, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. okay. Close almost to, 20, 18 almost, years. Almost 20 years. Mostly at the college and university level, but also some precocious high school kids. I asked him about the kinds of things he asked them to think about as he prompts them to think about images more critically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I try to do with students um, is start talking about cliché as soon as possible. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, photography is a, is a funny medium. I mean, again, going back to this idea of repetition and ubiquity and embeddedness in the world, um, I, I think, and I, I often ask, I, I say this to students, I say, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, if this is your first photography course, maybe you're taking this because you saw a photograph at some point and you wanted to learn how to make that photograph or make a photograph very similar to that photograph. And that's something that is just intuitively, automatically a part of it. So I think you, you really have to resolve that and identify it and process and deal with that before you can really start to do things that feel like personal, more personal expressions. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, I don't really, I, I, I take a very kind of intuitive, organic approach, too. I, I don't really talk to students about what to photograph, but I, I do talk about what not to photograph. A student who first picks up a camera, you'll often see, you know, you can almost predict what the roll of film or the 70 images might include, a picture of their feet, a stop sign, a fire hydrant. Um, you know, whatever, their dog. Sunset? A sunset, a sunset, yes, absolutely. So I want students to um, kind of discover what, what's that thing that's important to them. I, I think they really need to do that on their own. Um, and in the beginning, with a, very be with a beginning student, you know, it's, it's very much about just learning the mechanics, like learning the violin, learning an instrument, being intuitive with it. I think, um, in learning about the camera, you, you kind of have to learn it as an instrument. And there, there are kind of stages or steps of development that, you know, I think every, every student of photography has to go through. Um, and, I, and I think those, you know, those cliche moments are actually really important because they, they create discussion and dialogue. And, and I remember our talking about this, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I think it was shortly after you began to teach and we're talking about, you know, cliches and so forth. And I just wondered, I was like, yeah, I can tell, you know, I've seen a fair number of photographs and so forth, but like, don't you have to have a certain amount of experience, like in any kind of conversation that you enter, like to know where the conversation has been. So if you're talking about the mm -hmm. conversation of images, like how would I as a 13 year old, or yeah. even a 70, like know that everybody's photographed their feet before, for example, like you wouldn't necessarily, yeah. or, or, or maybe it's that question, as you said, like think about maybe the photograph that you saw that maybe made you wanna right. figure out how to make it. Like it yeah. seems, Easier to do with a certain amount of experience, but harder to do with less experience to know, like... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's like levels of understanding, levels to the conversation. Um, and I, again, I think it's important that students kind of go through those levels, but, you know, as someone who's hyper-committed to the, the medium, um, you know, I also want to kind of 
push them along yeah. so they get to that point where it's it's not about repeating what you see. And I mean, I often say this, that, you know, photography is a medium about recollection and, and repetition. It's not a medium where you generate new things typically, which is maybe why I, I really want to... Bust that wide Why open. I do that. Yeah, <laughs> I do that. Now I do that. Um, but in a traditional way, or maybe in a, in a more elemental way, you know, someone's learning about images. Um, you know, that's, th that, that's the trap. Um, but it's also, you know, it's what's interesting about the medium. Um, uh, and it's interesting because uh, the way it reflects back onto human behavior. Um, you know, where, where repetition and repeating and, um, you know, that's really about belonging and, um, you know, understanding or supposedly understanding. I mean, we, we, could, we could talk about how images uh, influence culture. Uh, I mean, that's a, another podcast. But, um, you know, these things are such powerful mirrors. And I, I think, I don't know, as an educator, this is, this is the thing I'm trying to, I want students to understand, um, whether they want to work within that program or, you know, however they approach the medium. Um, it's really important to me that, you know, they, they think about it not, not so much skeptically or cynically. And I, I've been uh, not accused of that, but I've had students <laughs> tell me that. But well, it's, you know... Skepticism's great. Right. Cynicism. Cynicism. No. And bad, I, and, yeah. Bad. But really, for me, I, I mean, I would, I would describe it as self-consciousness. Okay. That your decisions, um, I hope, eventually are made because, you know, you, you understand or, or at least you, you have a better understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. With a camera. Yeah, I imagine it's like a beginning, you know, songwriting student really loving something and then realizing it's like Beatles or Bob Marley or right. something. Like they're like, yeah. oh, I like this phrase because I've yeah. heard it many times. Or I've heard yeah. it before. A E D. But I, but I a -E -D. thought I just, oh, buddy I just yeah. came up with that. Totally. At the end of our two hour conversation, I asked John to describe what, to me, as an educator, is one of John's most poignant current projects, an ongoing series of dozens and dozens of portraits of his own students using the 19th century anthotype process, which, as we've said, relies for color on dyes and pigments from plants that are inherently unstable. That is, they will necessarily fade over time. I returned to the anthotypes and I, because I, I was really, I think, um, rethinking, reevaluating what it meant for an image to fade. And of course, all of these associations with memory and experience and people and life, you know, start to kind of come into play. Um, and I, I wanted to make photographs again. I wanted to make images of something that I felt invested in and um, that I, I was in close proximity to. And this is another thing I, you know, I'll often talk to students about is that, you know, the, the goal is not to take an ordinary photograph of an extraordinary subject. Anyone can go to Niagara Falls or, you know, and take a halfway decent photograph. Um, but the, the, it's really about going to the ordinary or, 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 you know, approaching things that we might feel are banal and in, in trying to transform or transcend what they typically stand for, what they're typically about. So I, I just started photographing my students 
I mean, my students, I, I have very close relationships with some of my students in the classroom. I mean, uh, I, and some awesome yeah, kids. Yeah. yeah, and teaching's a really big part of my identity at this point. So um, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, and, and I, I, uh, it's something I don't talk about that body of work very much, and I've, I really haven't exhibited it because my plan is, um, you know, I kind of want to get to like 100 or 150. I, I want to have um, a lot before I, I have a show. But, but then you were exposing these, right, in a greenhouse? Right, yes, in, yeah. In on campus? Yeah, right, right now, currently, yeah. Okay. On, on so they, on the and then you just check on them periodically. I do. And yeah, s and and see how they. A person in the biology department uh, has allowed me to use the greenhouse, okay. um, and one of my colleagues kind of helped facilitate that. Um, who you know um, works in the in the bio art lab at UB. Um, so I've been really lucky to just yeah be able to to do these things year round without worrying about weather and things like that. And so you do like and so you bring them and and scan them at various intervals is that what you do no, to, or no or no no I mean right here on the table right. we have the raw prints. I mean the I have exhibited them um, I, I exhibited 12 of them and they are, I put the actual objects the actual okay. prints into the frames um and yeah, I mean, their kind of fugitive nature is, is part of it for me. Um, and I think I recently said to someone or in a talk, I mean, I, I, I don't know, strangely enough, it's kind of comforting um, that things change, you know. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I think, you know, of the fact that probably by the time the image will fade, um, the person that I photographed, uh, they're going to be a very different person. They're, yeah, they're like anything else in the world. Yeah. They don't last forever. So, um, yeah, again, this is like following the work. Um, that body of work, I, I, don't, I don't know when it'll be exhibited, yeah. honestly. But, um, but I've been, I don't know, every year I'm, I just keep doing it. Um, and it's also a way to open up a conversation about photography with my students. I mean, it really is a teaching aid in a way. I can talk about more kind of metaphysical things about light and um, photography's relationship to the natural world. So it, it is also a part of, I think, how I, one of the ways in which I, I kind of try to get students engaged thinking about the medium in a different way. Than, than maybe you know how they were thinking when they walked in the classroom. Yeah, I think it's oh. some, there's something very poignant and and beautiful uh, about it. I always remember hearing you describe it and then seeing the images for the first time, um, because I think for you know any teacher, it's going to suggest you know the connections, the relationships that you have with individual students, but then also to recognize that these things fade and change over time, you know, mm -hmm. like some kind of the influence that one has on one's students, but also that they have on you, but that, you know, it fades and changes. Yeah, I, I mean, I also think it's, um, there's something interesting, like uh, I, I don't think, Im images don't have to be attached to objects, too. I mean, there's something about the life of an image um, that lives off of the object, I mean, you know, in, in a more interior space. I mean. You know, either one of us could probably, in our mind, uh, right now, recall 
an image that's not in front of us. Maybe, maybe it's a photograph, maybe it's a person in your life, it's, you know, whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's something about them being turned over to the ether, you know, that I, I think says something. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go along with Susan Sontag's uh, against interpretation right now. Again, I, I don't think everything needs to have um, be explained. That's it for today's show. My great thanks to John Opera for joining me, not to mention for his friendship since 1985. Thanks to you for listening to, sharing, rating, and reviewing Point of Learning. Thanks as always to Schaefer James for intro and outro musics. And special thanks this time to violinist Tom Halpin, my former teacher and star of Point of Learning Episode 9, if you're inclined to visit or revisit that show from three years ago, for permission to use his recording of Philip Glass's composition, Einstein on the Beach, as featured music for this episode. This recording comes from a live performance attended by Philip Glass himself, who called it the most elegant rendition of the piece he had heard. A member of the Lyceum Consortium of Education Podcasts, Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, and mixed by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you next month with radio visionary Bill Seemering, who wrote the founding purposes of National Public Radio in 1970, and then helped to create All Things Considered and Fresh Air. See you then. I really wanted to have some kind of angle, some kind of harness, because I feel like we could... <laughs> I'm going to start laughing. So exactly. <laughs> this is what I'm talking uh, about. This is going to be a I, challenge. I feel I like we could talk so about sorry. anything. Dude, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Stop looking at me that way. I wanted to have you on the show for a long time, because I'm a huge fan of your work, but of course, there's a problem. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's gonna be fantastic. Dude, I'm so it's gonna sorry. be it's gonna be all out I'm Sorry, dude. I'm sorry. Should we start with the lightning round? No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. It's all hot too. All right. This is gonna uh, be funny. Uh, all right. It's good. It's good. All right. All right, okay. Start over. I'm gonna think about something sad. <laughs>